Welcome to episode 64 of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our names. As always, I am your host, Michael Haig. And I'm your co-host, Mandy Cohen. Today we are very lucky to be joined by a cohort of the Franklin Vaux Survivor Group. Hi, I'm Melanie. I go by she, her, and hers. I was involved with Franklin around 2009-2010. Um, also was involved with Sylvia, who is part of part of the story in the website, so you you would have heard of. Eve contacted me about three years ago with some concerns and this had been, I'd been long out of these relationships. Um, And so after we talked, we realized there was something larger going on and we've been supporting each other ever since. My name is Rose. My pronouns are either she or they for the purposes of this podcast. And I had a not quite relationship with Franklin Vo in (laughs) the spring of 2015. And uh, Eve contacted me, I think, in the spring of 2018 as well. And that's when started to see that some of the stuff that went down during that very quick, uh, I'll call it a fling, <laughs> uh, it was only about three weeks long. And turns out me and Eve had been hearing different versions of the same story. I am Marissa, and my pronouns are they, them. Franklin and I were friends. We met through another mutual friend, and I met Eve through Franklin. Talking to, I guess Franklin and I had been friends for a couple of years, maybe a year or two. I was talking to both Eve and Franklin right around the time of their breakup and was hearing different sides of what was going on, and one of them wasn't making any sense. Hi, I'm Celeste, she and her, and I met Franklin back in 1986. And we divorced in 2004. And Eve contacted me a couple of years ago. We have been friends and supporting friends ever since. And I also, I met Melody and I hope to one day meet the rest of our team. And I'm very happy to be a part of, of this group for all the right reasons, not all the wrong reasons. Hi, I'm Eve. She, her. This right here is Gigi, and she is definitely judging all of you. I was involved with Franklin from 2012 until 2018, for almost, almost six years. Of course, we wrote a book together, started a publishing company together, and near the end of the relationship and then in the aftermath, as I started to learn that I had been told a bunch of stories that weren't necessarily as true as I thought, uh, I started reaching out to all of these people to try to get their side of things. And uh, as we as we talked, we kind of realized that there was a bigger a bigger thing going on. Um, and I just want to say, like, everyone here in this call was a tremendous support to me, both in the aftermath of the relationship and the breakup. And uh, in, in Melanie's case, during the last like six months of the relationship, and then throughout this whole process super grateful for that. Everyone listening at home, uh, everyone just made hand heart symbols. And then also, uh, <laughs> Gigi is a cat that Eve has behind her. And if you want... And Sylvester is judging you right back. And, right, that is Melanie's cat. Okay, so Gigi has a Twitter about how Gigi is judging you, and I will link the Twitter in the description if you want to see more of that cat. Awesome. It really is great to see the camaraderie between all of you and how comfortable and happy you are seeing each other. That's really fantastic. And it's really nice to see. It seems like this has been an amazing silver lining to everything that's happened. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know how I could have gotten through what I did without all of you and the folks who weren't here as well. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, or but as I understand it, what we're going to talk about mostly today is the harms process that you participated in, specifically focusing on on how that 
actually re-harmed you and what could be done to create harms processes that are actually helpful and beneficial for survivors rather than usury on survivors. The one thing I think I'd say is that like some people were helped by the process is my understanding. Mm -hmm. There was a range, as was said in the survivor statement, there was a range of experiences, there was a range of effects. So I wouldn't describe a single experience or single effect to everyone is all. I was harmed. <laughs> a lot of people nodded. So just in the call, a lot of the people nodded. That's sort of enough, right? I mean, with the 12 or so people, if that number of people are reporting harm, that's obviously too high of a number. We already know that for all practical purposes, the number one thing that stops people experiencing harms from reporting is the fear that they will be re-harmed, that the traditional justice system is extremely re-traumatizing. Mm-hmm. And so if there's a 50-50 shot, you get re-traumatized. This is problematic for getting people to participate. Also, if everybody, and I'm going to link this again, there is a survivor archive that has all of the survivor stories. So that's out. It's very public. We've done a lot of episodes on that. And it's very important work. But we're not focusing on that today. But you can go look at it if you are not familiar or up to date with it. If anything else is recommended, I will add it to the resources. And it will be there as it always is. How many of you for my own reference of knowing how much backstory to give out have listened to the other episodes that we've done about this process? I don't think I have, but I can go do so at a different point. I've listened to a few of them, but I didn't realize you did five. So I must have missed a couple. There's an original one. There are two updates. There's one yeah. on the updates by Franklin's group. And then there is one final one when where they said, okay, the survivors are going to go off on their own and do the, the survivor archive and no longer be part of this pod. So I guess there are five. Yeah, I've, I've missed that one. And we probably mention it again in 10 more episodes. <laughs> They're just not full episodes on it. <laughs> it's like Rocky. We definitely have a lot of episodes in the intro. We're like, and we just read this update and we just yeah. read this update. But yeah. I just yeah. wanted to have a general sense. So, so that means I'm going to do background if I'm ever referencing something in an episode because not everybody has listened in that way. I know where we're at. I wasn't going to do that if everyone had. Thank you for keeping such track of that. I didn't know anybody was doing that. It was super important to us because it's, you know, what we do is is an ethics podcast with a polyamory framework. So it was super important for us to address it and to make sure that our listeners saw the good things and, you know, and then eventually saw the bad things that happened. And so, you know, it was very, very important for us, especially with him being, you know, such a quote celebrity in the poly world and for us to make sure that he was brought down to a human level. Well, I thought you guys just did an amazing job of distilling because I think one of the big things about this whole process that I have noticed is that everybody has an opinion and everybody's going to post their opinion somewhere on some thread on some website on some Facebook thread and it's just there's so much noise about Mm -hmm. everything that was going on and from my point of view I really appreciated your ability to kind of distill through that noise and actually get to the heart of the matter which is often what a lot of these conversations that have been happening online and on Facebook on different web boards and stuff like that it just doesn't happen because it starts becoming character assassination it starts becoming all these other things Mm -hmm. and I guess one of the things is I mean the hope was that this process would facilitate getting to the heart of things better. And Mm -hmm. I think it didn't quite manage that. 
with the online presence of it. It is interesting, though, because in some of the episodes, I've mentioned that the local polygroup has instituted some pretty radical policies. And some of them were not born out of this, but a lot of them, at least I think, were backed by this to say that when I would say, let's do this, people would go, well, why? And I'd go, this is why. Mm -hmm. Because we have leadership and leadership can Mm -hmm. be abusive and leadership can do harms. And we need this in place before we even start if you're going to want to have an ethical community. So at least I think it was extremely impactful in my community and my life in addition to obviously in my work. Mm. Even though transformative justice is something I studied in college in my applied ethics degree, I also went back and reread a lot of manuals, especially how to and applied manuals for it during this time frame. And that was very helpful for, again, creating and implementing some of those systems, which is part of why it was so saddening to see the final post and to go, okay, we need to talk about how (laughs) and what and what we can do better because... I mean, I know traditional justice doesn't work because traditional justice is what creates the framework for backlash. It's what creates this framework for assuming that the only option is extreme alienation. It's something that I saw very early on in my communities. If anyone did anything even remotely out of line, half wanted to completely ban them and never talk to them again. And the other half wanted to just completely pretend it didn't happen. And you you felt this pressure to decide they were guilty or not guilty. And guilty was Mm -hmm. you're the worst and not guilty is then there's nothing that happens. And neither of these systems work especially in extremely complex polyamorous relationships where the sub-communities can be very alienating and can create this sort of gang-up mentality. Mm-hmm. Yep. The medium statement, it was a collective statement. And so it was, mm-hmm. it you know, it left out a lot because it was trying to narrow down to a very specific subset of what we can all agree on. But would it be interesting to kind of go around and have each person kind of say like what they wanted out of this, what their reasons were for getting involved and what were the effects on them? Because I think it was a mix for everyone. Yeah, I think that would be a great idea if everyone's willing to. Also, I'm realizing that this might be a little clunky, but I think it's worth it. How does everyone feel about saying their name before they talk? Because I feel like people aren't going to get the thread of who's saying what with this number of voices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to skip that because I have a very, very different voice than the rest of you, if that's okay. (laughs) That's probably a good idea. Yeah, I can say it first if you'd like. That's okay. Just to be fair. I don't want to be unfair. No, it's fine. Okay. (laughs) Okay, Celeste, what I wanted to get out of this process was to shared events, knowing that we weren't the only ones targeted, you know, like I, I didn't feel like I was targeted, that he has a process that we know now what to expect from him, if you enter into a relationship with him. I personally wanted it to be known that it was his choice to be in a relationship with me who was monogamous, is monogamous. And it was his choice to follow the rules that we made. I wasn't forcing him. I wasn't abusing him. That it was his choice that that is what he wanted to do to be in a relationship with me. That I wasn't a bad guy any more than he was a bad guy in that respect. The threatened, he threatened me that he will never admit to when somebody looks you in the face and and says, you don't know what I'm capable of doing. When I take my car keys away from him because he couldn't take his girlfriends around for the weekend. When I feared that statement enough to leave my own home, that was a threat. And then he turned me around in later years, I guess, from all of you to, you don't want to be like her, you know? So I was weaponized And then I was a weapon for all of you, which makes me feel that much more anger for him 
And that's what I tried to do through Live Journal all those years ago was to tell my side of the story, to let people see the way he was treating me, that he wasn't everything that he was saying he was. And it's taken a long time to do that. So it sounds like you probably then did get what you wanted out of this, right? Because your side of the story was fairly public during this process. And here again, we're hearing you say it and we're exposed to it. Yes. And and that is kind of what all I hoped. I, as much as I would like to have seen him completely dethroned, that would just be a bonus. But people do forget and he's going to keep putting himself out there and he's going to continue to behave like an authority on all subjects. And people will drink the Kool-Aid, as they say. Mm-hmm just like they do with so many men like him. But I feel good that I could get my story. I mean, he, he, he gave his thought. He wrote a book. He wrote online for years of stuff I never even knew about, using me as an example that I never even knew about. So I, I was able to put my story out there. And if he still wants to keep fighting that, and he wants to write another book, or he wants to write 100 more books, I don't care, as long as my version is out there of it, so that people can find it. And now with all of yours out there also, it's not like I'm the only crazy one out there. So then did you feel that the harms process was damaging or harmful in itself to you? Or were you okay with I mean, how it went for you? I understand that for other people, it might not have been but from for your own personal for my own personal experience, my goals were met. Mm -hmm. The process itself is flawed, I think, or has its flaws. Mm -hmm. The tables can be turned rather quickly, as we've all seen. And everybody's opinion, they feel their opinion matters just as much, if not more than yours does, whether they're involved in the process or not. If they're outside looking in, they're going to feel however they're going to feel. So I just kind of build that wall. I've built a wall and and then I don't expose myself to any of that. Okay. I was in the situation at the time. I lived through it. Sure. And they they didn't. And the guy that he is today is probably worse than the guy that he was with me. And, and that's my opinion. Mm -hmm. So, And certainly great advice for anybody who's experiencing harms is to trust yourself and trust your own story, regardless of what other people tell you. Right. You have to, you, if you find the strength to tell your story, then you need to stand by it. And whoever is, I mean, you're going to have people judge you all the time. That's what, what the whole internet community is about. So you can shut it all out, but know that your story's out there to be told and just let it go from there. You've already probably been villainized. You've already been judged, but you've survived the process. So you just have to take it and run with it. I think it's worth just taking a minute and like revisiting what the survivor statement actually said, because I, I don't think that it said that all or even most of us were harmed. Right. I can say that I definitely experienced harm, mm -hmm. but I am not actually aware of any of the other folks involved in this feeling that they experienced harm. I don't want to speak for anyone, but that's my understanding. You know, what we did say was Luis's work, it was mixed for some of us felt very supported by it. Some of us felt our stories were being safely held. Some of us felt less so. But overall, we decided that we should have our own site. And we said, and this is true, that um, none of us were given input into the interactions between the survivor pod and Franklin's accountability pod. Mm -hmm. I mean, that 
overall dynamic in itself was harmful in that the survivors should have been driving the survivor pods work and were not. But it doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that, you know, every individual person involved was was harmed. And one of the things that was happening, and you can see this in the documentation I provided you, Michael, is that like, for the time that the survivor pod was involved until we all came together as a group, which we should have been from the beginning, and I can talk about that more, but like, I was very much a buffer between the survivor Mm -hmm. pod and the rest of the survivors. So a lot of the harm that was happening was concentrated on my experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The question of like, how were you harmed or were you harmed? Like, just don't assume that everyone Mm -hmm. was because I don't think that's true. Like there was harm in the process as a whole, but yeah. Well, I guess I don't mean that question to be assuming there is harm, which is why I asked, or, you know, were you, were you not? Mm -hmm. But as someone who's outside, who followed the process very closely, to some extent, the laconicness of that statement made it so that when you read it, it felt like there was a lot between the Mm -hmm. lines and that was between the lines was almost all not good. So it may not be true that the statement said that, and I am not trying to misrepresent what you said, but that was sort of my feeling at reading it was going... Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Totally fair. Right. And so I think for a lot of people that I've talked to, that is sort of the big question is, well, in what way was that harm happening or was it? Mm-hmm. You know, and so people say, well, I didn't feel that. I didn't feel that. That is also useful feedback as well, I think. Okay. Marissa, I can say that while I wasn't harmed in the process, I very much witnessed harm happening. Mm-hmm. That was super troublesome to me. So I'm not sure if I can speak to that. So I was involved, I was coming in on um, kind of a support angle of this as I wasn't a survivor myself, even though I did find out things where I feel like he still caused me harm because lies about me are harmful. But I was in communication with both the survivors and also those who were supporting the survivors. And I was noticing stuff going on and the, the support team that was directly harmful specifically to Eve. Mm-hmm. that I tried to talk about and that became kind of an issue in the support area of that because it was frankly gaslighty and mm-hmm. minimizing and kind of patronizing. So when I saw that happening, I really was not comfortable with what was going on because I came on sort of later, kind of in the middle of it all. And um, then it hit a point where I recognized that with my personality and what I do in my life, I wasn't being the best kind of support that the survivor team needed. And so I stepped away due to my own ethics. I recognized that I wasn't being helpful. And I kind of wish other people in the support area had recognized (laughs) what they were doing beforehand because it was harmful. It was, yeah, it was not nice. And I'm no way saying, by the way, that I am some kind of model of ethical perfection. I just recognize, oh God, sure. if I'm staying stuff that is causing stress and harm to survivors, then I'm not being supportive. It's awesome that you recognize that. Uh, this is Eve. Marissa was formally on the pod for like, I don't know, like a month or six weeks or something, right? Like we even announced it in a medium update and stuff and then and your name's on the bio page. And then later mm-hmm. contributed a story to the survivor testimonies page. All right. Rose, do you want to go? I mostly also joined this as kind of support structure sure what I needed after my experience with Franklin was mostly closure because we kind of left things on a hanging note and it didn't make sense to me and I was hurt and I was bewildered and hearing from Eve gave me that closure and I have kind of stuck around the process to support. I think that the only harms that the process might have done to me are kind of peripheral just as I saw and heard from Eve that things were happening. It gave me a lot of anxiety because I have had really bad experiences with 
reporting harm <laughs> from people mm-hmm. to sure. communities. And this was the largest platform I'd ever reported harm on. So as I saw it start to destabilize, that was really, really anxiety provoking just because of past experiences I've had. But not too much has come my way because of it, other than some, you know, snarky comments about me from Franklin on his most recent podcast. But (laughs) I am the fangirl that he refers to. Ah. Wow. Rough. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Gag. I, I am also a fangirl now, apparently, in, in case anyone didn't notice that. I see. <laughs> so. I, I apologize. I have stopped listening to the stuff that Franklin specifically puts out because none of it is about how he's engaging the harms process and therefore I'm just not interested. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of the idea of rehabilitation for anyone that's willing. The only thing that's unforgivable for me is an unwillingness to participate. And mm-hmm. so since he's not, I don't feel the need to read or listen or subject myself to any of that material. So that I'm a little bit out of date on. I do apologize if that's a problem. This is Marissa. I'm completely out of date. I don't, I try not to read anything that he's written. I don't know if he refers to me as a fan person or anything. <laughs> I did meet him at a book signing and a reading of Game Changer. And I was excited about more than two because I have experience in abusive poly situations almost entirely in poly. So for me, meeting people who I thought had an ethical standard and truly coming from a place of, you know, that I was excited about that. You even have someone to talk to. But as soon as I realized that that's not really him, then it just Mm -hmm. shut down completely. This is Melanie. I think what I was really hoping for from the process was more of a larger cultural sea change, a raising of awareness of some toxicity that I believe is kind of embedded in the culture of polyamory Mm -hmm. and a real examination of that. Because my own experiences in the relationship, both with Franklin and Sylvia, which are very inextricably intertwined because they were dating each other as it's the whole thing was a big mess. I was experiencing toxicity from both of them and both of them in a way that were, they were justifying it with all of the philosophy of polyamory and all of the, the pontifications. And it was just seeing how much of that had been baked into being an acceptable way to behave amongst the poly crowd. I wanted to have accountability for that aspect. And I do believe just our, our speaking has, kind of mm-hmm. set forth a bit more of conversation around this. I think it had been brewing underneath, but now this conversation is becoming more and more evident and more and more people are rejecting that toxicity as the right way to do poly. You know, all of this mm-hmm. no man is an island kind of stuff. This mm-hmm. idea that everybody's responsible for their own feelings and if you're, you know, if you're hurting then you have to examine your insecurity and I know I'm, I'm, I'm obviously anxious attached according to Franklin these days apparently mm-hmm. whereas it's actually no that's not the situation and but But I think in terms of the process, I I had to, I really reflected a lot on this because there were really good aspects of this process for me. I do believe having the conversation with Louisa and having her capture my story and having her reflect back to me allowed me to sort of reframe and think about things that I hadn't been able to articulate. So that was really good. I feel like the pod themselves, the sort of the people who I thought were our support often were just undermining our story. Yeah. It ended up being, everything became about their foibles and their sort of flawed way of approaching Franklin's pod and their mm-hmm. dishonesty with how those communications were going. That ended up really undermining our own stories and our voices. So it's like, I didn't directly feel that harm, but I think it indirectly ends up harming 
because it ultimately undermined our voices. What was the dishonesty? The communications that were happening between them and Franklin's pod, they would say that they approached about a certain thing and it turned out actually, no, they, they said something very different to that pod than what we assumed they had been saying. I see. And it, it wasn't very clear to us what exactly they were saying to the pod, to Franklin's accountability pod. And had mm-hmm. we known, because a lot of this came out afterward, I think, and Eve had to do quite a lot of digging to notice that, wait a minute, this doesn't line up. And why why was this said? And a lot of it just had to do with when they were communicating to the accountability pod, they weren't necessarily communicating the things we needed communicating. And then they wouldn't let us know what it was that was being said. So mm-hmm. there was ultimately a lot of miscommunication. So the accountability pod really had the wrong idea of what we were after and, and going for. And then just in terms of the actual conversations, because, you know, we, we have a Slack group. There came points where I definitely felt sort of minimized by some members of the pod. There was a couple members that would just center themselves at certain points mm-hmm. where I, I'm a bit of an Internet fighter. I'm not going to lie. I, I, mm-hmm. I tend to go right to the carpet on threads when it comes to people talking about things and arguing. And I think there was a thread going on on one of the other polycentric websites. And there was some thread about all of this. And I felt the need to call a certain thing out. I don't even remember what it was. But one of the members of the pod, and I wish I could remember who it was, it was one of the newer members, she sort of just said, Oh, no, I don't like conflict, we should be doing it this way. And we should make sure that everybody gets along on this. And then it started becoming about how she really can't stand conflict. And then the whole ended up being about her for a bit. And I had to sort of step back mm-hmm. and say, wait a minute, I'm not okay with what's happened here. Yeah. I had an issue in this. And like, one of the things that I did appreciate that the pod did early in the process was when our story ended up being discussed on various threads and websites, they would step in and advocate for us mm-hmm. rather than us having to go in and advocate for ourselves. They would step in and advocate well. Mm-hmm. And that slowly started dissolving. It stopped after mm-hmm. a certain amount of time. So in that beginning, I really appreciated that advocacy that they they provided for us. Mm-hmm. But then later, it yeah, it just felt like we were detached from the work they were doing. Obviously, it's it's life happens a lot in things. And it's really hard to keep track of everything all the time. Sure. You know, I sort of checked out for a bit because I didn't feel like I had any connection to what was going on, aside from just people every now and then offering opinions about my story. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, that was an issue with the pod. I feel like that ultimately they undermined us and they undermined our voices and our story being told. I have really noticed a difference since we've put the website out, a difference in, first of all, the feedback we're getting from people who are agreeing with the stories and saying, oh, gosh, I've experienced something similar. Thank you for voicing. That's wonderful. That alone has just made the whole thing worth it. However, I think it also has distilled out all of that extra noise that was being created by the pod. Like, as I was saying earlier, I appreciated the fact that this was one of the few podcasts that was actually getting to the heart of the matter and not Mm -hmm. being part of the noise. And I feel like the pod was actually contributing a lot to the noise and not to the heart of the matter. (laughs) So that's the kind of thing. So ultimately, I think I was disappointed in in the process. Mm-hmm. May not have been directly harmed, but indirectly and just disappointed that that ended up that way. At the end of the day, I'm very glad to see not only that people are getting a more complete picture of what a certain person who gives relationship advice is like, but that we're actually getting a more complete picture of the culture and how the culture needs to change to be less toxic and more nurturing and more human. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, if anything, I'm really, really glad that's happening. Great. That's awesome. Eve. Wow. I I was really glad to hear you say all of that. 
Melanie, because it's so good to hear, I mean, as always throughout this whole process, like bits of my experience and observations reflected back through someone else who experienced and saw the same thing. And I don't know that we ever like communicated about that before and your observations about it. No, we haven't. Thank you so much for saying that, <laughs> all of that. Um, I mean, I have a lot to, to say about this. And as I mentioned to, to Michael before we did the podcast, like it's still hard for me to talk about without just like boiling over with rage about some of the things that happened, which then like play, you know, I'm afraid is going to play into Franklin's narrative about me as like this angry person. And I'm like, well, I am fucking angry about this because it was fucked up and not okay. For me, there were two things going on. One was the importance of bringing these stories to light and especially like Celeste's story and Elaine's story and Amber's story who had been so erased in the narrative for so long and turned into these like characters. Sure. Especially knowing that I had a role in that erasure in terms of working with Franklin on more than two in the game changer and actually publishing the books. And so like that to me was a really important part of the story because I had done harm in that way, Mm -hmm. as well as being harmed in that moment as a result of the smear campaign that Franklin was initiating. And so just bringing the stories forward was important. And there were other people like, like, you know, Melanie had communicated to me wanting to, to tell her story. And at the same time, having been involved in a lot of anti abuse work over the years prior, having had people I was close to who had been in situations of abuse, I really didn't want to, I felt like it's always, it was important, like transformative justice to me as an idea, as a process was always really important. And I felt like, of course, I was still, I was still in love with Franklin. I had not had an opportunity to see everything I've had a chance to see over these last this last year and a half now of how he's responded to our stories. I still there was still part of me that believed that like, if he understood, like, like Amber said, in her testimony, like, if he really understood the harm he was doing, he would stop. Like, I don't believe that anymore. I just don't. But I did at the time, right. And I'm like, he has to be given a chance to do his work and and come back to integrity in himself. And you know, like, we can't just throw him away. Right. So that was where I wanted the transformative justice piece. And I really didn't want the process to be vindictive in any way to be about punishment. I now think, like Melanie said, like the pod and the TJ piece, it was just a whole bunch of extra noise. (laughs) I feel like we all would have been better off and especially me if we just come forward with our stories from the beginning and just left the whole TJ piece out. And if he wanted to start an accountability process, good on him, right? But like, I felt a responsibility to sort of lay out that path for him. But I also it wasn't just for him, I wanted us to have an example as a community to follow. I was like, I have Mm -hmm. seen this botched so many times, let's try to do it well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So What really happened, I mean, there were sort of multiple phases of of this. And there was a phase where, again, going back to what Melanie said, it's like the pod really was advocating for us. And and, and for me, there was a time when I was working closely with them. And then something happened with them. And they just like retreated into this like shell of like, we're going to do our own thing. And those pesky survivors just need to be managed. (laughs) And like, you know, like, because because they're in a fog and they're triggered and they don't know what they want and what's needed here and we just need to do our work and they're in the way like it's you know a lot of that mm-hmm. kind of and um it, it became very like weird group thinky you know like marissa mentioned 
super gaslighty, like they very tightly controlled connection, that relationship with, it wasn't even a relationship, but with Franklin's pod in ways Mm -hmm. that were extremely damaging. And, you know, this is difficult to talk about because I frankly think they horrifically botched that entire interaction and they were not honest with us about what was going on. But also that doesn't let Franklin or his pod off the hook. Because I think that, you sure. know, you can see from their communications and from everything that like it was never gonna be like they're they're fucking obsessed with me, right? <laughs> like that it all comes back to me yeah. that I'm like manipulating this and like playing all these people like with, you know, puppets on strings, you know, and, and somehow like you know our paw didn't create that that dynamic but they also did not represent us and they did not represent our interests so there was a there was a mm-hmm. period of like two or three months where things got super super toxic and then i reached a breaking point and i and and at that point another thing that was happening was i was being isolated from the rest of the survivors like all of us were being isolated from each other and the ostensible reason for that was like confidentiality and louisa was doing her work and like trying to corroborate the stories and all of this stuff but like i was in- experiencing these increasingly toxic dynamics and feeling like i couldn't go to the other survivors even the ones who had been supporting me for months before suddenly i felt cut off from them mm-hmm. Until finally I reached a breaking point. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I need us all together. And I need all of the communications with the pod to be happening with all the other survivors so that everyone can see this. Because that was like my like protection against being like further gaslit by the pod. And so that was when we created the Mm -hmm. Slack group and we all came together and started interacting. And even then the pod kept trying to pull me aside into private chats. And I was like, no, no, no. I set a fucking boundary here. You talk to me in the group in front of the other survivors. I'm not having this conversation. And I would like copy and paste their private messages to me out into the group where others could see it, you know, to Mm -hmm. stop that from happening. But I was still like embarrassed even because I was like, I didn't want, I was afraid that like the rest of y'all would bail if you saw the toxicity, (laughs) but that didn't happen. So thank you. Uh, This is Rose. I just wanted to say in terms of like the idea of bailing, I've been bailed on in vulnerable times, and I know how that feels, so I wasn't going to be doing that <laughs> to someone else. <laughs> uh, yeah. I just, like, the dynamic, once we all gelled as a group, the dynamic changed so much. And then especially once the couple of pod members who were sort of responsible for that fragility and that self-centering thing that they were doing finally left like it got so like so much got so much better and it's interesting because um so Kali Tal uh who did the analysis of my correspondence with Amber is now doing an analysis of our entire process and she has been given she says it's thousands of pages over 400 documents uh constituting thousands of pages of text about this process including the entire pod private pod slack our entire slack you know, private chats, everything. And she sees it too. Like the, she says like the pods dysfunction really stands out against the survivor's function, <laughs> like the way that we work collaboratively mm-hmm. and solve problems and are very task and solution focused versus they're just sort of whatever they were doing, spinning out everywhere all the time. So I'm really looking forward to that analysis being published. This is Melanie. I think one of the things I noticed about this, and I have perceived this in other transformative justice processes that I've witnessed, is there tends to be a bit of a preciousness 
about the process. And mm -hmm. um, then all of a sudden it has to be handled with bubble wrap and gloves. And kind of ironically, there's a real aversion to conflict and managing conflict mm -hmm. within the process. So I, I noticed that within the process, all of a sudden, you know, we had this sort of very precious, special thing that needed taking care of that was very fragile and breakable, this whole process. And I felt any form of robust justice process or any accountability process would have a certain amount of robustness that would be able to weather difficult feelings and conflict. And I think this, mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. process felt too fragile for a lot of that. And I felt like there was a lot of the difficult feelings needing to be managed rather than worked through and and learned from, I guess. I mean, I've learned a lot because I, I did quite a lot of work in consensus and formal consensus. And the idea that those quote unquote bad feelings that arise are useful and informative and can probably teach us something about where to go from here. And I feel like our bad feelings, any bad feelings that happened within this process had to be quelled. Mm -hmm. It just felt really fragile in general with that. Mm -hmm. uh, this is Marissa and that you just brought up something that um, I think is super important. And I haven't thought all this through my background. I have no background in transformative justice other than reading about it, but I didn't even have any kind of um, basis because I wasn't there at the very beginning to know, to talk to whoever was consulting. I didn't really know, you know, so something that I did notice as being, I, I'm going to be a psychotherapist um, coming up in the next couple of months. And one of the things that I think is super helpful when dealing situations where there's somebody who has, uh, I don't want to necessarily say power, but there is sort of a position of power where somebody's coming in as a support versus a survivor. Mm -hmm. There are ethical rules. And part of that is you don't bring your yeah. own emotionality or um, uh, whatever you're going through personally at the time to the situation, which is why I, at the time, stepped away um, because I recognized that I was doing that. But I, that's something that I see is seems to be missing. And I'm not saying it's just in this situation, but it seems to be missing overall uh, where there is a, you know, if, if survivors are there having to manage the feelings of the people who are there for support, that's, that's not how that should operate. So yeah. I think that's, I think the ethic, like an ethical code is missing from the process. I mean, I understand that it's a problem. You know, there's a couple of factors that I can see how that would happen very easily. The first is that most of these processes, even with paid chunks, are still a lot unpaid. And the people who tend to be in it unpaid tend to be there because they are emotionally attached to some sort of outcome and mm -hmm. often are themselves trauma survivors, which is why they think that the work is important. But it's also the reason that they're easily triggered. And then there's also an issue where, so when I was listening to to Eve speak, I wanted to just quickly remind listeners that accusations of irrationality and emotionality are uh, standard and irrelevant tools, mm. which we use to discredit primarily female voices historically, really anybody. And it's usually people who are in pain, because it turns out when you're hurt a lot, you start to be kind of irrational because you're being injured and your brain sort of clicks off the calm part of yourself. And then they use that to dehumanize and undermine people's suffering so they don't have to deal with it by going, well, if you can't tell me rationally mm -hmm. how I'm stabbing you in the face, then I don't have to talk to you about it. That's just your problem. I don't know. It's not me. And if you don't believe that, go back and listen. We have an episode called No Such Thing as Objectivity. If you think you're objective, you're not. And a lot of that is baked into writing on accountability work, but it's baked in so hard, it seems to also apply to the people running the work. This idea that people are allowed to have emotions and allowed to have trauma and allowed to lean into that trauma, and that's okay, and that's acceptable. And it is, 
but not into survivors. Exactly. This is Melanie, because I work quite a lot within church settings, and there's this element of pastoral care and being a support person in this. And pastoral mm-hmm. care requires that boundary setting, but not just the fact that you're, that it's not that your emotions aren't allowed, it's that your emotions need the right receptacle in the right place. And it se- it does seem like we probably could have used a chaplain-like figure throughout the whole thing, just somebody who could hold the space and mm-hmm. be that receptacle for when it was needed, because it, there was nowhere for those feelings to go except into the group as a whole in many ways. This is Eve. And I think that to me, to some extent, when Kali joined the Slack about a year ago, and ostensibly to, to study us and study our process. But <laughs> to some extent, she started filling that role, which is interesting, because that's what she does. She's a trauma scholar, and she interviews trauma survivors, and she just holds space and, and listens. So that was kind of interesting. But like, I, something that I have learned over the last couple of years is like, how many ways there are to say, bitches be crazy. Basically, like if you are too much of a feminist to say bitches be crazy, there's a lot of other ways that you can say it. Anxious attached is one of them, right? Like, you know, Franklin saying, Mm -hmm. literally saying on a podcast, all of the women involved, all of the people involved in this call out are anxious attachers. Like, bitches be crazy. But also, there was a person who was hired as a paid consultant to this process. And I know questions have come up before about what money was spent. Well, that's where the bulk of the money was spent was on a consultant whose job it was to train and oversee the pod to help them not fuck up. Mm-hmm. Very seriously, some of the worst money I've ever spent in my life. I did pay for it. I don't feel like they did their job. I don't feel like they did what they were. Yeah, there are folks shaking their heads here, but they were quoted recently in an article about transformative justice. And I was shocked, shocked by this quote, because it's basically like they're talking about how in these processes, people's traumas get triggered. And so they'll just like survivors will yell at you for no reason and block you and blame you, even when you've done nothing but spend countless hours helping and listening and loving them. And I'm like, whoa, like, because I know that this person has at least two survivors who feel very seriously harmed by processes that this person has been deeply involved in. When someone says like, oh, well, they're just so irrational and triggered. Sure. And all I've done is love and help them. Like, what what does that sound like <laughs> to you? It sounds like the abuse that you were all trying to deal with in the first place. Yeah. This is Melanie. It's interesting because part of the process of working through with everybody, um, especially with, with the survivors particularly, is this learning to reposition myself as someone who sort of internalized that message of you've got a lot of work to do, you're triggered, you're upset, you've got, you know, Mm -hmm. I I just internalized so much of that. And especially through the period of time that I was in a relationship with Franklin and Sylvia, I really, really internalized that it was my problem. And I think part of what has been really great about at least when we finally had this as survivors, when we were finally supporting each other, that's when that narrative has been able to finally be turned around that internalized Mm -hmm. idea that it was my problem and my failing. I guess, again, disappointing that that was not the case with the pod, with the support pod. Yeah. This is Rose. I also want to note that we don't always just agree with each other and pat each other on the back. Like there have been times that we've checked each other and said, hey, maybe you should wait before you act on this. And we do not always just agree and like lemming together. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely a lot of back and forth and making sure that we're all 
also being accountable for ourselves. You mean it's not just one big kumbaya? This is, who am I? Celeste. (laughs) I do believe sometimes you do just have to wait an extra minute and maybe check yourself out and find out where you're coming from before you land with all claws in and just make sure of where where your emotion is it just pure emotion or is it something that you're ready to go battle for because that's what this is i mean we we are battling a world of his groupies that you know mm-hmm. want him to do no no harm we'd say he will never do any harm how could he do that he says this because <laughs> they haven't been there yet they haven't sure. been where we have and gone through that process nor do i want them to but i i do think we have to know what that'll do to us after after we dive in you know how much harm we could be doing ourselves by picking that battle so my grandfather all one of the things he always said was just just wait a while and me and the cousins always joke about that whenever anything comes up just wait a while and and sometimes that's really what you need to do this is melanie it's interesting because like what you're talking about there celeste we we have a channel we have a specialized channel on our slack that is specifically about triggering content and Anytime we come across triggering content, we'll share it to that channel and discuss it with each other. Sometimes the triggering content isn't, oh God, there he is, like sort of funny and like, oh, there he is doing this thing again. And other times it's really, really blood boiling because we're seeing ourselves being lied and misrepresented and Mm -hmm. we're seeing ourselves being character assassinated. And it's really interesting as a survivor pod, I've never experienced this level of comprehensive support when we hit these types of content. Celeste comes in pretty much with the wisdom and the the cool head and sort of the 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 idea of, you know, just giving us the reality check on the whole thing. Rose comes in with a huge amount of compassion and just kind of shares shares the feeling side of things and the impacts and how that works. Eve comes in with the big picture and the more larger understanding of what's happening. And all of us together kind of process through this triggering content all the time. So one thing that I absolutely would, again, all of the things that have happened, it has been worth it simply to have a group of people who really do understand that every time this shows up on the internet, what it does to us and what it feels like. Mm -hmm. Because so many people just talk about disgruntled exes. Oh, they're just a bunch of disgruntled exes you can't get over and they don't really get it. And to have a group of people where we can process it together and get it together has been enormously important. This is Rose also having a safe space to vent. Yes. Having space for each other's anger, knowing that a lot of the stuff we say isn't stuff that at the end of the day, maybe we we don't necessarily feel that way, but like we need to get it out. And then Mm -hmm. we collect ourselves. And once we get that emotion through, we're able to then talk about how we want to move forward with something in a much more measured way than the initial reaction might have brought forward. Right. This is Celeste. And you also also have to remember that it boils down to a narcissistic asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. You know, it's the source. It is totally the source. And, and I mean, you're talking about a guy who, who claimed to have lived in Europe. For, I mean, remember a few weeks ago, where I think we came across it. There are so many lies. So many lies. It's so hard to keep track. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Okay. So 
it, and, and they just go on and on. It's like a, a dominoes game. Watching as an outside observer, I am thinking that maybe a big part of the problem was the level of celebrity and the lack of a space that has authority over mm. uh, over Franklin in any meaningful way. And so I'm wondering if for celebrity cases, something like the survivors working together, a team of people to work with just to support the survivors and but not like not like a, a front forward survivor support pod but like literal people like do you need counseling do you need help can i bring you some pasta can i mail you a pizza and then an archive like this so just that the stories stand in contradiction to the public narrative that the other person put out make more sense than the sort of a accountability system because the accountability system seems to require an interior community to provide the leverage for it to make sense. And it seems to primarily benefit this interior community because even when an interior support process fails or a harms process fails, the person isn't in the community anymore. But when you have mm -hmm. this exterior facing a harms process, this person isn't in a specific community and they're sort of this sort of meta community and they don't cease to exist because the process fell apart or doesn't end up collecting their buy-in. This is Eve. There are a couple of things. One is that there was another person involved in the pod very briefly last spring for just a month or two, who at about the same time Marissa was, who sort of helped interrupt that, that toxic patterning that was happening. And uh, this was someone with some experience in accountability and, and TJ. And one of the things they said to me that really hit home is like, there is no circle, right? That in this case, there's no community that can actually mm -hmm. hold this. It's just a bunch, it's this loose, diffuse like right. online, you know, people reading different things. And, but there's no, yeah, there is no one that, that Franklin is accountable to really. Mm -hmm. and, and the same thing happened with Celeste 15 years ago. It's like, there was a community that tried to hold him accountable and he just left and moved on and built himself a new circle on live sure. journal. And so the other thing is something that has been really valuable to me is learning about Nexium and, you know, listening to the podcasts, the recent documentary the vow on HBO about about Nexium because there are a lot of similarities in the way that Franklin Vo and Keith Raniere kind of operate and, and manipulate people. I think they're some important differences. I'm not saying they're the same, but like I, I see reflections in that. And um, in The Vow, one of the things that was really striking to me was the way the survivors came together and worked for themselves and advocated for themselves to expose Keith Raniere. And so like when they were talking to the New York Times reporter, they're also calling each other and like exchanging like constant, they're in constant communication with each other. And like when the article comes out, it's like they're all on Skype with each other and suddenly communicating. And like the amount of support that these survivors leaving that cult gave each other and anyone else involved was very clearly in an external supporting role but they were at the center and I think that's kind of the place that we got to eventually as a group but we didn't start out there I started out in the middle during the toxic period feeling very objectified like there were people who wanted something out of the process yeah absolutely. whether they wanted a career in TJ whether they wanted to take Franklin down whatever it was but it's like my story right was a vehicle for that. But I was not at the center. When you have a case where there is someone like a Keith Raniere, who has a lot of victims, who has a lot of power, 
who you know to be vindictive. It has to start with the people who are harmed coming together and working for themselves. And that always has to be at the center. And like, I think one of the most harmful things to me during the worst part of the process was the way I was separated from other survivors. And that was ostensibly, you know, part of, I don't like, there were various reasons for that given like journalistic integrity, whatever, whatever, but that's bullshit, right? Like, so... I also just want to add, I like to call Celeste the uh, designated grown-up in the room in our Slack, because she is always the one that comes in. I just also want to reiterate, I I wasn't trying to be calling him names. I was merely stating fact. So (laughs) I want that to go on the record. I wasn't name-calling because I don't resort to name-calling, but I do like to present fact. So just want to put that out there. This is Melanie. Your question sort of made me think of a larger issue that sits outside of the community of polyamory altogether. Well, community, culture, I don't know. We don't really have a community, do we? Not an individual one. No, no, no. I think there are sub-communities, but there's this illusion that we have a full set community. And I think that was part of what happened here is that there was this sense that we have a polyamory community. And we said, look, there's a person doing harm. And people were like, no, I like this person. No, I don't like this person. And oh, okay, I see. It's not really a coherent cohesive community that you can put material into yeah i think it's 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 more helpful to think of it as a culture yeah i think that's rather right than a community however i think there's a larger backdrop that ultimately is tainting our efforts in that there's this real cultural shift towards critiquing cancel culture the sort of new discourses jordan peterson kind of thing that's taking a bit of a foothold in general public consciousness right now this idea of being too fragile or virtue signaling all these kinds of things that take these very real efforts that we're making to create some accountability for someone sure. who is perpetuating harm into being shunted into and classified as this cancel culture gone mad yeah. and that kind of thing. And I think we we had to sort of observe a certain amount of sensitivity around that. Mm-hmm. I think our the way that we did was to just focus on our own selves at that point. And as soon as we drew that circle into ourselves, it became less relevant and more important for us to just move forward with our stories rather than try and sort of deal with this obstacle course of everyone's opinions, I suppose, if it matters. This is Rose. Uh, Absolutely. I've, you know, not to go too far into the weeds on what's going on at the national level, but I've been talking to my friends. I'm like, we're not going to fix this at the level of the federal government until we fix it in our families and in our homes and in our communities. Communities because these dynamics exist at every level because right. it's it's the entire culture is steeped in it. It mm-hmm. just feels normal. We are fighting against the water people are swimming in and they're getting really upset about it. Yeah. And so there's a lot of gaslighting involved. There's a lot of right. like it, the you know the cancel culture is the new insult being lobbied at us. PC culture was yesterday's. I don't know what it was before that, but it. Sure. Yeah. It's always just code name stuff because the same people saying cancel culture are then calling on people to boycott people in, who are in cancel culture. And you're like, that is literally the exact same thing. <laughs> the insanity of you getting on there and go, well, don't listen to them. They endorse cancel culture. You should stop <laughs> spending your money at their store. And you go, that's the same thing you're complaining about. It's just not aimed at what you're concerned about. Not that it hurts less, but that kind of pushback is expected because these people enjoy the privilege of being able to say what they want, even if it harms people without being pushed back on. And, you know, that's definitely something that I've had a lot of cause to reflect on over the last decade or so, but especially in in light of these sort of processes is that I have no harm or trauma in my entire life until I'm like 18 or 19. 
2019. So I have a very secure personality. I tend to respond to criticism with laughter because I, I just, I know that that's about the person leveling the critique and not about, you know, me, unless it's about their emotions. If they say, I heart, you know, I feel bad or you hurt me. I will want to know why that they feel that way. But it's different, you know, when someone just says like, you're a terrible person. I'm like, okay, sure. All right. That sounds like an objective <laughs> fact in reality. Uh, you know, we'll just continue with that. And I did grow up in a group that really liked ribbing people as our cultural standpoint. So making fun of people, mocking our friends. And I realized at a certain point how incredibly privileged that is because that just can't hurt me. And then there are people that it can hurt and people are saying, hey, when you do this, it kind of hurts me. And I'm like, well, but why? It's not about you. It's just how we relate. It's how I've always related. It's how my friends and I relate. It's funny. It's comedic. It's interesting. It's witty. Like, I don't understand the problem. And I started realizing, but that's because I don't understand the problem. Mm. Of course, I was very resistant to that change because it's what I'd always done and I enjoyed it. And it wasn't hurting me. And so it just isn't something that you can immediately see. And so that kind of backsplash is, you know, you should very much expect it because these are people who all grew up this way. They're all very comfortable this way. And you're asking all of them to sort of reevaluate what makes them feel good and what has never caused them harm. And very few people, and I don't think anyone really can imagine well enough for it to be relevant what other people are experiencing. You know, the best that I've ever gotten to is just accepting that it is, you know, that people report to me that this is harmful. And I go, all right. I have no clue how this hurts you, but it does. So I'm going to stop doing it. And that's a hard point. This is Rose. That's something that I've been talking about a lot when I do run into people who are having trouble misunderstanding it, at least in my lo local BDSM and kink communities, mm -hmm. is very much like ribbing your friends and making fun of your friends and digging at your friends is okay if it's consensual, if it's all in good fun for everybody. But the minute somebody says, hey, this hurts, you stop. That's what happens if you're having a scene. That's what happens, like, that's how consent is negotiated and ongoing in any situation. So it's not to say that like, I mean, me and my friends will absolutely wail on each other verbally sometimes. But if anybody like starts to struggle with that, we stop, we recalibrate and we move forward. Like that's the idea of having a community and the people you care about. When I was in that poly Tampa group and my world fell apart, most of the people in that group, probably about 50% of them looked at me as the terrible person because I was making him live this way. Mm -hmm. I was making him have to have a relationship that was tiered. When you're it the outsider. A primary, right. And how could I have done this to him? And how could I have made him live this way for, mm -hmm. you know, 17 years and how, how I was the terrible one. And that was harmful to me because it was completely yeah. not acknowledging that that was a, a choice that he made. Sure. That was, you know, a decision that he made between us that we were both going to have to make concessions in our ideal relationship if we wanted to be together. Mm -hmm. And that was just as harmful to me as the whole changing the world process. And then they also were like, well, you know, it's a divorce. Everybody gets divorced, you know, just shut up and move on was the feeling that, that I was getting from them mm -hmm. rather than, you know, yeah, this was my world that was falling apart. My, he mm -hmm. was my world for all of those years. And I took care of him literally day to day. I bought his socks. I bought his underwear. I cooked his food. I paid his bills, well, our bills, but you know, he didn't have to really do anything except bring home his paycheck and then he could do whatever he wanted and did whatever he wanted to do after mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So 
being a monogamous person in a poly group is, I learned, you know, you, you don't, it's you don't find a lot of support there. There's a lot of toxic anti-monogamy sentiment in poly groups. I've seen so many poly people mm-hmm. say, make statements like blanket statements, like poly people are smarter, poly people are more ethical, monogamous people are sheep, they're less emotionally intelligent, mm-hmm. these sorts of things. It's a horrible approach to have. But there is a, a great number of those poly people from that group that are really no longer actively poly. Mm-hmm. So I will have to say that things happened after after I came north. But that was one thing that I, I did want mm-hmm. to say before I have to, to leave in about 10 minutes. So thank you. We know that in 2004, when you got divorced, you tried to tell your story, your friends and some of the folks in the community tried to hold Franklin accountable. What would you have liked to see happen then? How could that have gone better for you in at that time and in the aftermath? I, I was just looking for somebody there to say, because he was starting to be an up and coming person in, in the, the poly platforms. And what I really wanted at that time was just for people to acknowledge that he wasn't doing what he was preaching. And that's what I really wanted outside people to see that, you know, the what he presents is not what he is doing. And that was, that was you know how how he's he's saying one thing and he's putting it out the advice that he gives is way different than what he's actually practicing and that was probably the most offensive thing that was going on at that time for me and then having the group you know we had invited into our homes that I cooked for for a couple of years you know on Sunday the the poly group was held at our home and then them not not acknowledging that what he was saying and what he was doing were not lining up Mm -hmm. to say that oh well you know maybe to him maybe he could have done things you know because this is what he talks about you know and then you know I'm sure he's still saying it online well if my partner says no then it means no and you know I always tell the truth and I always do this and I you know there's a lot of things that he wasn't truthful to me about in his romantic situations with his other partners at the time that I was led to believe one thing and then found out what he was saying he was doing wasn't what he was doing you know that his honesty isn't always actually 100% honest I just wanted it to be to people to start piecing that together all those years ago and Life Journal was such a finite community that I couldn't you know could only get it out for anybody who was reading my page and then of course you know now that we have our this website with all of our stories it will reach a lot more people mm-hmm. well and that was that was kind of what i wanted to address to before you left it's kind of my job to be part of many different poly groups on facebook and instagram and i want especially you to know that If you didn't feel like the accountability of the process worked, the awareness did. In every poly group that I'm in, every time I see the book brought up, because it's the staple book. Any of the books, really. Immediately, there's someone that comments that says, this is a great book. There are a lot of great things to learn in it. But please know that any of Franklin's stories are a work of fiction and are inaccurate. Please see this link and they link it to your stories online. And it's not just one person. 
It's a multitude of people I see doing it. It's nice. So if you all feel that the accountability didn't work, I promise you the awareness did. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that Celeste heard that before she left, that that is there. The culture or community or, or whatever you want to call it does recognize it. And they are talking about it and they are making sure that other people know about it. Yeah, this is Marissa. I So I am, my focus as a psychotherapist is on sex therapy and I'm in a number of therapy therapist groups and I've seen people bring up the book and I'm always posting about you know hey this is an issue and I've also got to the point where it has been brought up in therapist groups where other people have brought it up now too so it is getting mm-hmm. out there this is Celeste and, and I, yes I guess I think he he also presents himself as a sex educator now too Rose just smacked her head on her desk just so- <laughs> I understand he may have a degree at this point in his life, but I don't know what it's in. So I worry that some of the advice that he gives some younger people may not be such a good idea. Yeah, it's not consent. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because he still does give interviews and do podcasts on polyamory, but it's just his usual recycled talking points over and over again. So apart from the fact that it like continues to present him as credible, I don't know that the advice itself is doing any harm. But overall, like he does seem to have pretty much largely stopped giving advice on sex or polyamory, which seems like a positive outcome of this process, I think. So I don't know how long that'll last. And I will say apologies to everyone. It was actually my idea, like five years ago for him to start calling himself a sexuality educator. Uh, (laughs) I was full of shit. (laughs) I'm really sorry. (laughs) But like, he should stop like that it's his responsibility that he accepted that and continues to to do that so like yeah yeah well you know it's just like everything else that he preaches about you know and how many people I hope are not foolish enough to follow all of his opinions I know that I'm in a group of directors of conference directors and none of us will touch him with a 10-foot pole so well this is Eve and I think this speaks to a broader issue too where you know we Franklin is not the only person who's been called out harm, not the only person where there's been an attempted accountability process. I I think there is a cultural problem where anyone who talks very confidently about a thing is seen as an expert. It's like, I talk about sex, therefore I am a sex educator. Well, actually, maybe that's not the best criteria. And we've talked about that before, for sure, that expertise is something that people do need to have credentials and demonstrate for. But it's also a difficult line to walk because, as we said, those tend to be Mm -hmm. very privileged. And a lot of times the expertise through education is very one-dimensional as far as who has access to that on a platform of race and privilege and other Mm -hmm. issues. So there has to be a way to be considered an authority through hard work. Mm -hmm. But there also needs to be some sort of process or at least basic community agreement on deplatforming for people who are causing harms, really regardless of how you got your credentials. Because I don't don't think what matters is the question of did he get his credentials the right way? Because you can go to school and still be a person who causes harms and you cannot go to school and you can be really great at teaching these things. The problem is that there is this evidence of harms and that people are, you know, if and when people are not considering that evidence of harms and this idea that, you know, this is an American problem, a capitalist problem. Oh, if he's not allowed to speak or work, you're starving him, you're killing him. And it's like being an authority in a community, especially a moral authority in a community is like you signed yourself up for that higher level of scrutiny, one. And then when that higher level of scrutiny says you've committed a lot of harms, there's no real reason 
person to to bring you back that I can think of mm -hmm. at the width and breadth of the level, especially if you're unwilling to participate in the harms process and hearing from the people that are saying that you harmed them and working through those issues with them. I don't see the point of that. And there's so many people waiting in the wings. Everybody wants to be doing this right now. You know, I like doing this. I hope I get to continue doing this, but I already know that people 10 years younger than me grew up in this whole culture and they have all of that that they bring to the table instead of having to unlearn all the toxic behaviors that I've had to unlearn. They're going to be better than me at this. So at a certain point, if, you know, I have this trail of harms, people go, well, we should just deplatform you. I'm going to be like, yeah. <laughs> oh, go, go, Celeste. If you're going to discuss these and want to educate people about these, then, then you need to put forth your resume and yes. know that you you yes. haven't you don't have a degree in it, you don't have any formal education in it. You've just had yeah. a lot of it. Yes, you yes. Know? And then at least let the person make an educated response as to if they're going to follow your opinion or not. I do have to scoot. Thank all of you very much. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you and for being here. We'll reconnect soon. Thank you so really much wonderful. for your time. for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Melanie. It's interesting that back in the day when people were first sort of gathering and having conversations about poly, people were quite quick to anoint experts. Like the groups sure. were quite quick to anoint an expert just because they were the most active. And it was yeah. it tended to be people who had the most internet and had the mm -hmm. biggest IRC channel and that kind of thing. But sure. I think what's what's interesting now is because there's more daylight on the whole culture of polyamory because it exists in daylight a lot more than it used to. Right. We're finally, I think, having a community that's willing to be a bit more honest about feedback to <laughs> people who prevent to who present things. Yeah. And I don't think that honesty was always there. And I do sure. truly believe that Franklin kind of came up to his own during a time when there was no honest feedback on the type of work he was doing. Mm -hmm. There was no systems of feedback even, but it seems like we're we're finally kind of in a place where that feedback is really important. So it's it's not necessarily as much about credentials, which I do think credentials learning is important and having a having coming at it from a place of having learned is definitely important. However, whatever avenue that learning happened in. Right. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree. I love learning. Yeah. It's like my signature thing. My podcast <laughs> is all about here's my credentials, here's why I have credentials. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. also find though that it's important from that place of privilege to then say, but there are other people who have really important things to say who weren't able to do that. And I don't want them to be considered less than because they were not as lucky. Absolutely. You know, I completely agree with that. But I think ultimately the community itself is now in a place where it is providing more accountable feedback to people. So I honestly don't think if Franklin had been coming into his own in a time like today, I don't think he would have been able to. I think he he probably would have been laughed away quite quickly. He would have been checked. Yeah, he would have been checked real quick. And I, I look back to some of the other sort of the older, the, the, the poly elders, shall we say, and a lot of them are cringe. A lot of them are just full of cringe. <laughs> and really, ugh, you know, I just, I think that even in some of my local communities here, it's just, ugh, what, what, what on earth? How is that even ever okay? So I think... It's encouraging to see this evolution in our culture happening. It's encouraging to see this evolution in, in accountability that the community is doing. It's just a shame that it, I feel like that retroactiveness is still has a hold on it in some ways. But it, it, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess at this point, it does seem it, the awareness has spread wide enough now. We have effectively sort of the, the community now is being is demanding accountability. Marissa had their hand up there. Yeah, I had a couple things to say. Um, I remembered previously what I was thinking. I've been taking notes now to remember. 
But it's the interesting thing about the credentials to bring up too is because um, I don't necessarily think the credentials are the be all end all um, because the credentials um, are usually written by previous people who have caused harm. Or um, I can tell you right mm -hmm. now, my textbook um, for my human sexuality course in grad school was so awful that it's only useful for fire. Like it is, it is kindling. It is, it, it, in the book states that swingers are polyamorous. So that's <laughs> what's being taught to people who are getting master's degrees in, um, you know, sex therapy. Now I'm not saying that people who don't go on to become credentialed at like a sex level, um, that's when you actually have a credential like that, when you've been a sex, um, at which I am going to be, uh, but therapists who don't have that qualification don't have the background. So credentials, you know, my my professor for sex therapy had a bunch of books that are outdated and was teaching um, teaching them and had no concept of what was going on right now. And I remember writing him, telling him over and over again how outdated this was. And his comment was just, yeah, you'll have to talk to the school about how outdated the books are. Yeah. So it's... The credentials thing, I'm like, iffy, I, I more look at critical thinking and are people able to listen, um, acknowledge new ideas and actually have a conversation about what's going on. And because all of this is fluid, we're continuing to learn, um, continuing to hear from voices that haven't been given uh, a way to be heard before a platform. And in in that way, I think deplatforming people who are causing harm is very important. This is okay. And getting back to the thing that I was thinking about before talking about cancel culture. I have so many thoughts on cancel culture, because I one think it doesn't really exist. But then I also don't think that the way that it's because people who are getting canceled aren't really getting canceled. But then again, I also don't think that it's effective to when people say things like this person caused me harm, they should never be able to do anything ever again. I don't think that's accurate. But if somebody is not acknowledging that they've caused harm, and isn't willing to mm -hmm. do the work to um, repair, if possible, the harm done and to not cause the same harm in future, then that person probably shouldn't be teaching or shouldn't be seen as an authority. And if people want to call that cancel culture, well, I mean, that's just saying you can't poison your food and sell it to people. Like, I don't, I don't understand why that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, this is Melody. Cancel culture, what people label as it, it's just basic accountability most yeah. of the time. Yeah. This is Eve. Marissa, you just re reminded me about, um, you know, the, in the pod itself, going back to that whole dynamic, some of the people who were causing the most harm were the ones with credentials. Uh, and in some ways, those credentials gave them an air of authority and power that then allowed them to silence other voices and critiques. And like the person who was throughout the entire process, the most consistent and vocal defender of survivor agency was the one with absolutely no formal credentials or experience at all, who was repeatedly silenced and silenced and dismissed because they did not have those formal credentials. So that was an interesting dynamic. But I also wanted to mention, this is going back a couple threads, but um, I think this is a good time to mention Crystal Farmer's critique that she published on Medium of the Reed Maholko process uh, and the fact that 
and, and, you know, this is sort of hidden. I have a lot of things I could say about that process. And we're not here to talk about that. But like, she talks about how there are all like, Reed essentially went through this like one year period of like retraining. Uh, as far as we know, there were no attempts at sort of any kind of real restoration of the survivors themselves, the people harmed, it was just like their their stories were taken as like, you know, teachable moments for Reed. And then Reed was essentially put right back into his place in his former position in the community when there are all of these other people who have never caused that kind of harm, who were never given the opportunities that Reed was given. And none of this is to say that like, you know, Reed hasn't reformed, that he's not a good person, whatever, whatever. Like I, I, you know, um, I have, I have no position on who he is, but I do know that there are some people in that process who very much feel like the harm was not addressed and that he has not taken responsibility. But just the idea that that this whole process is just about returning someone who's caused harm right back to the same place when you have this entire structure where all of these other people who maybe are better at what he's been doing just never got that chance. And I think there's something important, especially in the celebrity or spokesperson or authority level about the fact that the processes got to this public place before they were listened to. Mm -hmm. We know that there's an entire history of people trying to hold Franklin and Keith Raniere, reporting him to get college, reporting him to himself, reporting him to mm -hmm. co-workers. And in all those cases, that was all ignored and swept under the rug consistently until there was enough of a buildup to go public with it and then go after them publicly with this massive group of people that just couldn't be denied. Here's 12 people, here's 20 people, here's 100 people. If you get to that point, then I don't know what the point of reforming you is. I want you to reform for yourself. Yeah. I think that's an important thing to do. I want you to be a better, happier person. And I think that the Reformation will do that for you. But I see no reason that people in that context should be returned to a platform. Like if any of these people were the first person they ever harmed, went right to the public scene by themselves, and they went, oh my God, let's fix this. I'd go, yeah, mm -hmm. sure. Replatform that person. That's fine. But the fact that it took a movement to get you to listen. To me, Marissa was saying, I don't know about canceling them forever. And I'm like, I'm pretty into canceling them forever at this point. If canceling means deplatforming. Yeah, right. To deplatform them forever. Because right. if it takes a movement to get you to listen, I don't think I need to give you your platform back. This is Marissa again. I, I agree with you there. I kind of, I was thinking about this in my brain. It's kind of like if you're waiting in line and you're at the head of the line and you've done a lot of harm you have to go to the back of the line now right i think yeah i'm sure. not saying i'm not in any way shape or, sh shape or form saying that conventions or any kind of anybody should have to give yeah, anybody yeah. any any place no not at all i just want to agree with your statement that if they go basically all the way to starting at nothing again and work back up yes. over like a decade long period that's very different than being given back their position after like a one year space rather than starting from the ground up and i i would totally. agree with you on that now eve and then looks like everybody has a hand up so i guess let's just go through, <laughs> through. so eve you want to go and then i saw rose next and then melanie this is Eve. When we talk about canceling, I think that people get confused about the idea of canceling as like removal of power and a platform and removal from community and like human connection and support. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and I think this confusion is beneficial to some people who want to keep their platforms. <laughs> sure, absolutely. That those are not synonymous. So one of the things that we were trying very carefully to do with Franklin was say, okay, the platform and especially the stories, the lies, these are problems and need to be addressed. But Franklin himself as a human being does not need to be cut off 
from social support and community. Can we separate these things? Now, Franklin, knowing that, you know, one of the things that has happened to abuse survivors he's known was actual removal from real human community, immediately went to that and said, this is what they're trying to do to me. They're trying to remove me. And because of that confusion, because somehow people can't seem to manage to see the difference between like, you're on the platform holding a microphone, or you're in the back of the room moving chairs, but you're still part of the community. Like a lot of people were captured by Franklin's attempt to recast what we were trying to do. But like, that's like, you know, this, this friend who was in the pod for a little while, she talks about like, because she's very, very invested in like non disposability and keeping people, you know, like held by their communities by when there is a circle. But she's like, yeah, you know, you take them off the stage, but they still get to move chairs and like serve coffee, right? They get to be there. They get to be part of the community, just not having power. I just had a family issue come up and I've got to, I have to go deal with that. But I I wanted to thank you all. Thank you so much for your time. And please know that you have been heard. You have been heard and, and whatever we need to do to keep this loud and keep it relevant, we will absolutely do. So thank you all so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. This is Rose. Kind of going off of a little bit of what Eve was saying and problems that happen within communities, like when you talked about how it has to go public before somebody addresses the harm they're doing or before they take accountability, Mm -hmm. I think not enough attention is paid to the communities that enable them. Sure. Mm -hmm. And... I've noticed that it tends to be like two different things. Just like Eve said, the minute you say that somebody has harmed you, even if you explicitly say, I'm not trying to get rid of them, I'm not trying Mm -hmm. to do this, I'm not trying to kick them out, people act as if you have done that. And they treat you as if you have done that. And then they hold everything up to that marker of Mm -hmm. like, if it's not bad enough, then we can't take action. Yeah. And if it is bad enough, then they're the scum of the earth and we have to get rid of them. And I think that that's really harmful that we don't address lower level things before they get to this giant explosion point. And at least for me here in Columbus, Ohio, in the Midwest, Mm -hmm. there's just a whole lot of there's a lot of passive aggressiveness here. There's a lot of a lot of shame around the idea of airing dirty laundry. And you definitely get pushback when you try to talk about things for that reason. Mm -hmm. And then people also decry the rumor mill. And, you know, the rumor mill wouldn't be happening if you weren't shaming people for trying to air their dirty laundry. And and people having to air their dirty laundry wouldn't be happening if you addressed things privately when they first started coming up. There's just a whole lot that is not just the abusers it's the communities. The communities are systematically complicit in abuse. That's the whole reason we're trying to rewrite the community script. And this is for sure what we've run into is that when we try and institute harm processes, even in our very small group, firstly, whoever you try and do the harm process to immediately says, you are persecuting me, you're attacking me, you are, no one will ever recover from this. You say it's not a big deal, but everybody thinks it's a big deal and no one will ever talk to me again. And you're like, okay, well, I don't know what to tell you. Harm's happened and we have to do something to address it. We can't just let it let it happen. But so, yeah, the communities have to be trained from the ground up to, in something that is the opposite of modern, at least American culture, which is that that it is caring, that it is compassionate, and that communities grow together. They don't just kick people out unless those people are unwilling to help the community, basically. So that you have to start at the ground up and be like, our culture is we address every harm every time, and that's all it is. 
So when someone says you harm someone, we're just going to do a harm process. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that we'll kick you out. It doesn't mean we'll stop supporting you. We're actually going to gift you support. I know that whatever team I'm on, I'm usually on one of the two pods. I always offer to do philosophical coaching around the issues that they're dealing with, which is something that I normally otherwise would do for pay. Try and, and help both groups and go, look, it's an opportunity to work through this stuff and be a better person. And also to tell the community over and over in posts, like don't ostracize them, don't come out and mercenary them. But the community still also does. Like I'll see posts on, on our board going vague booking posts about how these people need to be gone. And you're going, you are not helping because when you do that, <laughs> it makes it harder actually to help them or get rid of them. Both of those things become harder because if we move to the get rid of them or if they pull back into the get rid of them, then we have to have this traditional justice beyond a reasonable doubt burden of proof and sanity that's just, it's impossible and it's super enabling to abusers. Yeah, this is Melanie. You'd think that especially you know, polyamorous communities where we're so fond of talking about love not being a zero-sum game, you'd think we'd easily be able to adjust our thinking to think that justice is also not a zero-sum game and that it's, you know, it's <laughs> it's a spectrum and it's it's something we all exist, mm -hmm. it's a spectrum we all exist on together. Yeah. I think there's this idea of also, I, I just want to name a certain amount of entitlement that tends to come with this, which is when we say we no longer recognize your expertise, which is all that's kind of what we're doing here. We're saying sure. we don't recognize your expertise right. anymore as valuable to our community. That all of a sudden becomes the largest offense that you right. could give to, you know, that's the largest offense you could commit against somebody. And so the, the process of, I mean, it's interesting because I know a lot of people confuse restorative justice with transformative justice mm -hmm. and how they're, they're not the same thing. But there is this, this idea that the purpose of this justice is to put this person back where they were, mm -hmm. because that's where mm -hmm. they belong. And it's no, not. <laughs> the it is purpose not. is to put them where they do belong, wherever that may be. Yes. And for everybody together to be able to for everybody to be accountable to that, not just the ju not just the quote unquote leader or the person who is who is this is directed at the person who has done the harm. Everybody has their accountable role. And like what Rose was saying, the community needs to have a bit more. I don't know. It needs to be called out on that. Yeah. Community accountability. All communities should have these rules. It's one of yeah. the things. It's a drum I beat a lot. And I also a lot of people do not want to hear. <laughs> No. Yeah, we have a huge issue of that with our local community here with a person. Well, and I'm a huge fan, by the way, of just starting a new one if your community won't institute rules. I think it's a lot easier to start a new community with these rules at the base level than it is to try and get an old hierarchical top-down community to rebuild itself this way. It can be difficult even if you do start from the ground up. I had I had a separation from a local community because of some of these issues. I started my own with a partner at the time who ended up abusing me and I had to resign from the organization I started because I still couldn't get support sure. from the people who were like there yeah. and working with me and like even though I had stressed that kind of accountability from day one. I don't mean to mean that that's easy. That was never my intent there. I just yeah. think it's easier. Yeah. I still think you're fighting all of the cultural momentum that exists in the area. It's just easier than mm -hmm. an already embedded group culture in addition to yeah. over culture and larger polyamory culture and everything else was more 
the sort of the upshot there. But I do think people are also drawn to that approach. I think you're able to get people to join that because, I mean, it's a real problem. There's a real problem of consistent systemic abuse because whenever you have multiple people, it's really easy to brainwash people. Mm -hmm. So whenever you're in these multiple person relationships, I mean, it's hard enough in monogamous relationships not to get brainwashed. And it's a one-on-one discussion. And I think the being in the sort of alternative spectrum, this is Melanie, being in the, on the, in the alternative part of the spectrum leaves more vulnerability quite frankly. Absolutely. Well, it leads huge vulnerability because first of all, you can only get support from your community most of the time, because if you go to anyone else, they go, well, the problem is that you're polyamorous. The problem is that you're Mm -hmm. non-monogamous. There's nothing wrong with this person. The problem is just that you're non-monogamous. Fix that. It's all good. And that doesn't help you fix the problem in any way and just sends you back going, oh, well, and at best you think I'm the problem, clearly, because my friends all think I'm the problem for being non-monogamous at best. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you're absolutely much more vulnerable and the communities don't know how to handle it. And I've said this before, but also they just, yeah, oh, you're getting abused. Well, of course you are. You're (laughs) non-monogamous. You know, what did you think was going to be in non-monogamous communities? The same thing that's in all the monogamous communities and everywhere. Yeah, right? Yeah, like like, like monogamous communities are super abuse-free. No, monogamous communities are just better at hiding it. There's just systems for how to call it. But yeah, so I think we're in a really good stopping point. I think this has been amazing. It's been a lot for me to work with. And I, I know I can't, but I really wish that I could use the video for this because their faces and the way that they connect <laughs> and the way they interrelate and the joy and the compassion and the kindness are literally palpable watching it. And it's just been such a treat for me. Like it's made my day better being part of this process Aww. today. So I am, you. feel very honored that you were all interested in being on the show and just to witness this kind of camaraderie around this kind of pain firsthand. And it's, it really is beautiful. And it's just something we need much more of instead of people thinking we need less of it. Anyone that thinks people need to be quieter about pain is, is crazy. Transparency is your only, transparency is the only way. Yeah, we need more and more transparency. And that's just, I think that's a very hard generational divide too. This is Eve. I love that this group is intergenerational. And I mean, of course, part of that is is the result of Franklin's patterns that he continues to find people who are the same age, even as he gets older and older. So we have, you know, a, an age range ranging from Rose up to, well, actually from Lisa and Joanna, the, the oh, youngest yeah. ones, all, all the way up to, to Celeste. But it's just created this beautiful dynamic of perspective and uh, and experience. And I love it. This is Melanie. Um, I'll admit that coming into this podcast, I was dreading it slightly. I really wasn't sure how it would feel to be talking about this stuff and how it would be received and that sort of thing. And I just have to say it's been... It's been a great, it, it's been lovely to just, it's been very relaxing. I feel like I, I feel like mm-hmm. I can exhale a little more than I could before. So mm-hmm. thank you for that. Yeah, I was a little anxious last night. I posted about it in our Slack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's a good thing. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Anytime. Yeah, it's been wonderful. All right. Bye, everyone. Okay, that's it then. Bye. 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 Okay, thank you. Well, see you next week. And we can go ahead and stop recording? Yes, please. Okay.